Okay, so welcome guys. Today we're doing uh, three books. We're doing Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. So uh, I feel I feel that the the deeper you go into the the Old Testament, into the minor prophets, the less you know about them, right? Very few people know have even read your Habakkuk, Zephaniah, um, Nahum. So uh, maybe it will be your first time being exposed to this. Uh, if it's not, then yeah, I think hopefully you will discover, learn something new. And yeah, these are not very big books. These are, for the most part, quite simple books. So we'll start with Nahum. And you can turn there in your Bibles. Uh, keep your Bibles open as usual. If you have any questions, comments, feel free to jump in. Feel free to stop me. And yeah. So if you turn to Nahum... This book is named after its author, right? the prophet Nahum. And Nahum is sent during the darkest period in Judah's history to that point. It's a time filled with idolatry of all kinds in a nation that had completely turned its back on God. On top of that, the enemies had been oppressing them. right? So God sends Nahum and his name means comfort. And the message given to him by God which is that Nineveh would be destroyed, brings comfort to Judah. So this book starts with an oracle concerning Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. So this is the same city we just read about in the book of Jonah. Uh, on Monday, we looked at Jonah and how he was sent to the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh. right? And he told them that God was going to judge them in 40 days, and the people repented, so God relents. The events in this book at Nahum's time, they happen around 100 years after Jonah's time. So back then we saw the people of Nineveh repent. But sadly, the repentance we saw in the book of Jonah maybe lasted one generation. It didn't last longer than that. The Syrian people are now back to their old, cruel, oppressive ways. And the Assyrians, they go on to conquer Israel and they destroy it. And so this book is about judgment that is going to come upon the Assyrians in Nineveh for this, right? For all of their sin, the city is going to be destroyed. So if you look at chapter 1, uh, verse 2 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So... This passage is a restating of a part of Exodus 34, right? So remember when we looked at chapter 34 of Exodus, it is God telling us himself who he is and what he's like, right? God states his gracious attributes. He says he's a merciful and gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, right? So th those are his gracious attributes. But God also tells us in Exodus 34 that he will by no means clear the guilty, right? So this verse, uh, so this verse, verse 2 and 3 of Nahum is looking at those Exodus 34 characteristics, but now from the negative side, from the perspective of God's judgment and wrath. The Assyrians have sinned and now God will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit their iniquity. So the historical context of this book, to date this book, 
we know it must have been written or the events must have happened before the year 612 BC because that is when the Assyrians are destroyed by the Babylonians, right? And the Assyrians are no more. At this time, Babylon is on the rise, right? They're gaining more power. They're increasing as an empire. And Nineveh is on the decline. In the year 612 BC, uh, Nineveh is conquered by the Babylonians. And at the end, uh, in 605 BC, there's a battle, a battle at Carchemish. And that's when the Assyrian Empire basically comes to an end, right? They're completely annihilated. And that's when we have the first deportation of the Jews. So we also know that this book is being written after the year 663 BC because there is mention of a city named Thebes, right? And it accounts for its destruction. So just turn quickly to chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, verse 8. And verse 8 of chapter 3 says, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? Her rampart, a sea, and water her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile, she went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men lost for her honored men lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken, you will go into hiding, you will seek refuge from the enemy. So he talks about the destruction of a city named Thebes. Now Thebes was along the 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 Nile River. So Thebes was a capital city along the Nile River, which is deep in Egyptian territory which was a very strong city as well, right? Uh, Egypt could defend itself very well. And uh, within Egypt, then there's Thebes. And yet Egypt was conquered by the Assyrians uh, in 663. Uh, sorry, Thebes was conquered by the Assyrians in the year 663 against all odds, right? Um, and the Lord is saying in this passage we, that we read now, he's saying, Nobody thought that Thebes could fall and be conquered because it's based deep within enemy territory, right? Within Egypt. It's almost like if someone's going to attack, um, let's say they're going to attack uh, Lesotho, right? Lesotho is within South Africa. So you kind of have to get past South Africa and its army forces. If it might not be very difficult. And then you're going to have to get to Lesotho, who, has its, who is also strong, right? So that's what's happening. And God is saying, you think that just because you're within Egypt... And that you have a strong army, that nothing's going to happen to you. No, right? Your fate is the same as Thebes. You will also be judged and destroyed. This is what God is saying to the Assyrians. So the children of Israel, when they read the book of Nahum, they rejoice. Because now it's going to be God's enemies who are judged, right? And one thing we can take away from this book is how, remember, Jonah failed to realize what Nahum is reminding the people of Judah, which is that God's justice is always right and it's always sure. Just because God chooses to grant mercy does not mean that his gift of mercy will compromise his justice, right? Justice will be done in the end. And we can take comfort in knowing that judgment uh, upon wickedness will come. You know, all will be said right. We can be hopeful and patient and the gospel, the gospel frees us not only from God's wrath and judgment against us, the gospel also frees us from the dominion of the world, the flesh and the devil. So in saving us, 
God overthrows and destroys dominions that are opposed to his rule, right? That, are, that rule and oppress his people. So in the same way that he's overthrowing the Syrians, God overthrows all that's oppressing our souls, mainly sin, right? The flesh and uh, the devil. And that's an application we can take away from, from this book. Um, so it's a very straightforward book. It's basically an oracle concerning Nineveh and the judgment that's going to come upon it for what they've done, right? So any questions there, any comments, any thoughts? If not, let's move on to Habakkuk. All right, so he turned to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is a very interesting book. Um, it's what some have called a theodicy, right? So a theodicy is basically uh, a defense of God's righteousness, right? And because there is the so-called problem of evil, and the problem of evil is if God is righteous and good, how can evil exist in the world, right? Well, there's evil in the world, so God cannot be good, right? If he's good and he's all-powerful, he would stop evil. I'm sure you've heard that, right? Uh, especially atheists. Um, that's something, that's a common objection to Christianity that they like to throw. And they say, one, it's either God is all-powerful, but he's not good, right? He's not good, so he allows evil. He condones evil. Or God is good, but he is not all-powerful because he cannot stop evil, right? He cannot stop all the evil and all the wrong that's happening in the world. And so atheists love to use this to disprove God. But we know that God is both good and omnipotent. He's, he's powerful, all-powerful. And so today you and I can use this book as a theodicy to explain God's righteousness. But I want you to remember that in none of the entire Bible, right, do any of the authors think like this. No one thinks, uh, no one in scripture thinks, how can we defend God, right? God does not need defending. So don't come to the scriptures with the mindset that we need to defend God. It's wrong, right? This is not a book to defend God's character. Um, but when you are wrestling with the problem of evil, especially when something bad has happened in your life, or you're struggling with a, an incident or something that has happened to you, then Habakkuk, this book can be very helpful because that is exactly where Habakkuk finds himself. He finds a lot of evil going on around him. The context of this book is after the death of King Josiah. So Josiah was a good king in Israel. He was one of the few good kings that they had. And Josiah tried to reform Israel. He discovered the books of the law. And so remember, the books of the law are the first five books of the Old Testament, right? And then he started implementing it. And it says a lot that the Bible was lost, right? God's people didn't have the Bible uh, at this period in time. So King Josiah had raised money to repair the temple, to repair and renovate the temple. During the repairing, a priest finds a copy of the Bible. He finds the law, right? And he reads it to Josiah who... You know, he's, he's overcome. He's, he's, he's a man who fears God and, you know, he's upset and he's, he's you know, he's overwhelmed. And then he, he moves into action. He calls for national repentance of the Jewish people. And then he implements reforms in the land. 
He orders that the temple must be cleansed from all objects of pagan worship and that the idols be removed from it. So he was a good king, right? He was a godly king and he tried to lead his people to God. But then he dies in battle in the year 609, 609 BC. And after the death of, of Josiah, Israel gets bad king after bad king after bad king, right? These are all evil kings who don't fear God. And it's something that, you know, if you think of our modern day context, sometimes you, you might look around and you see, oh, there's this ruler and after a bad ruler, there's another bad ruler, another bad ruler, etc., etc. Same thing is happening with Habakkuk, right? So Habakkuk lives through the reign of Josiah and he sees the good that comes from his rule, godly leadership. But now he also sees the reign of these evil kings and the problems that they cause. And so he cries out to God. And chapter one of uh, chapter one, verse two, he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is looking all around him and all he sees is this injustice and unrighteousness and violence. And nobody's doing anything about it. Those with power are not doing anything about the corruption. Criminals are not being thrown into court. There's injustice. There's violence in the land. There is strife and division among people. Sounds a bit familiar, right? It's a lot of societal issues that we can relate to. It's the kind of society that we can relate to. So Habakkuk is saying, Lord, why? Why do you let me see these things, right? You see these things and... You do nothing. You're being idle. And that's, one, that's what is in Habakkuk's heart. And that may also be in your heart from time to time, especially if you are the victim of injustice. Lord, why? Where are you? You're powerful enough and I know you're good. You could stop this from happening. Why didn't you stop it? So the Lord says, and I'm, par I'm paraphrase paraphrasing here, the Lord says, don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm raising up another country to come and judge Judah, right? I'm raising up the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk says, but Lord, those guys are even worse than us, right? How can you do that? And the Lord says, don't worry, Habakkuk, I'm going to judge them as well. And that's what we are left with, right? Bad things are happening, but God says, don't worry, I'm going to deal with it. But the way God deals with it is not the way that we want him to deal with it. And that's, that's where the problem comes in, right? We want God to work on our terms. Apparently, we know better than God. Our wisdom is better than his. And it's really, it's the pride we have as human beings, right? Um, in, my, in my debating and, you know, discussing with uh, atheists, normally they will say, why doesn't God stop evil? And a good question to ask in response to that is, do you want God to stop all evil or do you want him to stop only the evil that is inconvenient to you, right? What about your evil? Uh, you want God to stop, you know, um, all the, the crime, all the crime, all the corruption, all the murders, all the rape, all of these injustices. But shouldn't God stop your lustful heart too? Shouldn't he stop your lying lips, your anger, your bitterness, your gossiping, your slander of other people? So... You see, the subtle statement that us human beings make is, God, this is how you should deal with evil. Otherwise, you are, not, you are not worthy of being God. You are a weak and a pathetic God, right? 
And then some say God cannot be real because he is not running the universe and governing things my way. Such is the, de- the depths of depravity in us, right? Such is our pride and arrogance. But God's way in dealing with evil is always best. And so here he uses the Babylonians to deal with the evil of Judah, right? His own people. So verse 5 says, Look among the nations and see, and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, so the, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. So the Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians, um, even the Egyptians, all these nations were very, very cruel people. They were savages, right? Uh, which is amazing. It's an amazing contrast because they all built amazing civilizations. It was very sophisticated, right? The temples and the buildings and the systems they designed were amazing. The systems of control that they had allowed them to control massive areas of land. And yet at the same time, uh, they were incredibly cruel and heartless people. So you might have seen in movies or documentaries where they show, you know, how they've built all these amazing temples and and all that stuff, or some dramatic movies where they depict they depict how they would savagely kill um, and torture and and rape and kidnap. They were very cruel. They would skin people, you know. They would impale them or crucify them, and it was very barbaric and yet sophisticated. So it's just like the Romans and just like the Greeks. It's just like us today, right? We're capable of amazing achievements and innovations and yet capable of incredible cruelty, violence, and injustice. That's human nature. That's fallen human nature. And so Habakkuk speaks in verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly, mercilessly killing nations forever? So Habakkuk is asking, is this going to carry on forever? You know, is this going to be a repetitive cycle? Will this nation rise to kill that nation and another one to kill that one? You know, why do you let the nation that is less righteous devour the the nation that is more righteous, right? Because in a sense, that's what's happening. There's God's people, there's Judah, and they're evil, right? They're doing, uh, there's idolatry, there's um, all kinds of evil happening in the land, but God is going to bring someone worse than them to come and judge them, right? And so Habakkuk is like, are you going to keep on doing that? Is that a cycle? Just get more, the more evil person to put down the less evil person? And God answers, chapter 2, verse 2, and the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, tablets, so he may so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by by his faith. Right. So in the middle of this passage, God declares that even though there will be wicked men. The righteous shall live by faith. And I hope that's a phrase that sounds familiar to you. It's a very important verse. 
And you and I know it from the New Testament, the just shall live by faith. Paul quotes it in Romans 1 uh, verse 17. So actually turn, turn with me there. Turn to Romans 1 um, verse 17 or verse 16. Okay, so Romans 1, um, and this, is, this was an important verse, right, specifically in the Reformation in the 1600s. Before the Reformation occurred, Christianity had been perverted and diluted, right? The message of God was uh, um, being peddled. And you had men like, you had a man like Martin Luther growing up and hating God because he would look at God and just see judgment. Right? He saw God as a policeman or a judge. He never saw God as a loving father. So Martin Luther became a monk and he worked really hard to, work, to earn salvation. He said, if any monk could earn their way to heaven, it would have been me. Right? Because he would outperform the rest. Um, he beat himself harder than the others. Um, he worked harder than the others. He was more pious than them. He, was, he worked so hard because he was trying to attain Right? He, was a t- he was trying to attain righteousness. He was trying to be good enough for God. And then he reads Romans 1 verse 17. says the righteous shall live by faith. And he, at first he interprets that to mean that the righteousness is from yourself. Right? I must be righteous. Right? I'm righteous. I'm good enough. So I'm going to live by faith. I'm saved by works. My own works. And then one day he realizes, no, that this righteousness that the Bible speaks of, it's an alien righteousness. Right? It's an otherworldly righteousness. It's a righteousness from outside of yourself that is received by faith. And that righteousness is from God, who is, who is the one who saves and gives this righteousness. And this changed everything for Martin Luther because now he understood the gospel. So Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and then he, he quotes from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, right? So Paul is quoting Habakkuk here. How do you become righteous? By faith. Faith is the means through which you receive the righteousness of God. You and I are declared righteous because it is given to us through faith. Faith, and it's very important to, to know this, faith is not what saves, right? It is the means. Faith is like a host pipe through which the righteousness comes, right? Faith is a conduit. It's, it's, not that, it's not that God sees your faith and then he owes you righteousness, right? It's not an exchange. It's not a currency. Faith is not cash that you give to God and then he gives you righteousness. Because even the faith you have, it is a gift from God, Right? And using the hose pipe analogy, um, God gave you the hose pipe, right? It's not your own. So that's what that phrase means, right? Righteousness comes by faith. That righteousness is sinless. It is perfect, right? It was purchased by the Son. And God declares you to be as righteous and as perfect as his own, as his own Son. So in Habakkuk, what God is saying is that judgment will come, right? Judgment will come upon the, the land but life carries on for God's people. The just continue to live by faith. And that's actually a great thing if you are a child of God. 
it doesn't actually matter what happens. You will continue to live faithful because you're a child of God, right? That is how Paul is using it. By simple childlike faith is how you are justified. Justified as if you have never sinned. And that term is a legal one, right? Being justified is a legal term. You are declared righteous before the God who judges everyone. So the phrase in Habakkuk is actually, in the Hebrew, it's actually better translated as the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. So Habakkuk is saying, judgment is going to come upon the land, but God's people, the righteous, they are going to carry on being faithful in the midst of this judgment and persecution. So Paul uses this verse to, just, to argue for justification by faith. So that is how Paul understands the term by his faithfulness. Um, here's another interesting thing. So turn to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 10 quickly. So if you go to Hebrews, it's towards the end of your New Testament. So in Hebrews chapter 10, and the context of this book is the writer is writing to a group of believers who are tempted to leave the faith, right? They are tempted to apostatize and to turn from Christ, Christ because of persecution. Some of them have already apostatized, which is why when you read the book of Hebrews, you'll find it has a lot of warnings and a lot of statements of judgment if you do backslide. But these Jews, they are tempted because they think, you know, maybe if we compromise a few things, we will be treated better. You know, maybe let's just say Jesus was just a prophet or he was an angel or he was a created being. You know, that way the Romans will treat us better. That way we'll get to keep our lives. So Hebrews chapter 10, if you go down to verse 35, verse 35 says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 37, for yet a little while and, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteousness, sorry, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So you see how the writer of Hebrews is, he's not talking about justification, right? This is not about salvation. The righteous here shall live by faith. The, sorry, the righteous here are going to live by faith, which is referring to sanctification. So sanctification is the lifelong process of growing in holiness and becoming more like Christ. So on the one hand, by faith, we are saved and we are made right with God. We are justified, declared as righteous as Christ. That's how Paul uses it. On the other hand, by faith, we are sanctified. We are made to be like God. We grow closer to the righteousness of Christ. We become what we are, right? Because we are, we are now a new, we are new creation. We are new creatures in Christ. And here's the thing that I'm emphasizing, and we can't go fully into the technical side of things, but if you're going to take away anything, let it be, let it, let it be this, right? In the Jewish mind, when they read this, they understand that, that there is a distinction between justification and sanctification, but there's no separation, right? They are distinct things, but they are not separate. We often focus on justification a lot, right? Especially holding to reform theology and, and, and rightly so, right? It is the good news of what Christ has done. But if you say, I am justified, I am saved, but there is no sanctification, then you have not been justified, right? Don't deceive yourself. 
the fruits of the Spirit must be evident to some degree. There must be a change in your life. A change, a change that is attributable to the work of God. Even if it's an inch, right? If you are a naturally kind and patient person, don't say I've got the fruit of the Spirit, right? If you are, if you are not a naturally loving person, but you begin to love, then that is the grace of God, right? And there's a supernatural kindness and patience that will begin to take over. And so Paul and the writer of Hebrews are not just using this verse to, to just support whatever idea that they may have. It's not a generic verse that fits in with any kind of theological idea that we may have, right? It's dealing with both faith and faithfulness. Paul in Romans is describing how you enter into the Christian life, right? It's by faith that you are justified. The author of Hebrews is describing how you continue in the Christian of life, in the, in the Christian life, right? And don't lose sight of that, right? So the just shall live by their faithfulness. So, okay, turning back to, turn back with me to Habakkuk. Um, the passage continues in chapter 2 and in verse 6, there is judgment for the Chaldeans. Verse 14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that is the new heavens and the new earth when the whole planet is covered with the knowledge of God. right? And then if you go down to verse 18, it's a mocking of idols and idolatry. Verse 18 says, What, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent one, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. And then verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Right, And then after verse 20, that's when Habakkuk stops questioning God. Right? He stops asking God, where are you? What, what are you doing? Why are you not, why are you not doing this? Etc. Etc. He stops questioning and now Habakkuk starts to pray. So chapter 3. Chapter 3 is Habakkuk's prayer and he prays about this divine warrior. Right? And it's really an amazing description of this divine warrior which we know to be Christ. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light, rays flash from his hands. From his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague follow at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were, sca were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses? On your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. With rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from, from thigh to neck. You, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. 
Now, this is a very graphic picture to, 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 to describe this divine warrior and what he's going to do. And we even have the Genesis 3 link with the crushing of the head of the house of the wicked. And then Habakkuk ends with this famous passage, right? Verse 17, uh, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes, my, he makes me tread on my high places. So this is a very practical book, right? Um, and it can help us living in a society with so much corruption, violence, uh, violence against the most vulnerable members of society, uh, the women and the children and, and other injustices. The things that we witness and the things that happen to us cause us to cry out to God, right? Where are you? What's happening? And this book is a helpful response to those cries, right? God will judge. And we, we also have the privilege of asking him that question, right? We have the privilege of asking, Lord, where are you? What is happening? What are you doing right now? And there's nothing wrong with questioning God. We see that in the Psalms, right? We can ask in faith and in submission, but the time comes where we stop, right? Because God is in control. And because he's, he has already said that he will judge, he will bring justice. And so we just have to submit and live by faith, right? And then you will be able to say, like Habakkuk, even when I lose everything, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Okay, so let's leave it there with Habakkuk. Are there any questions or comments before we move on? Okay, I take silence okay, as a... Sorry about that. Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, just go back to you all. Um, it, it, it's in regards to Isaiah 11, 9, where Habakkuk spoke about the glory of the Lord. Um, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 14. Um, I don't, can you hear me clearly? Yes. Did, did you say in chapter 2 of Habakkuk? Chap so, chapter 2, verse 14. Can you hear me clearly? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. chapter 11 he said Isaiah right so they shall not head of the sword in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord mm. as the waters cover the sea so um, I don't know if you want to add something on that or if you see the, the probably more like a I wouldn't say synonym but more some sort of a correlation between like the knowledge of the Lord and the glory of him the glory of the Lord that as, as the glory of the Lord is there there shall not be strife, there shall not be um, any form of um, uh, enmity between uh, all that is uh, present before the Lord, you know, from animals to human beings. Uh, especially like when you read uh, chapter 11, you realize that it speaks about heaven. So much can probably, you saw that, but you want to add something on it. Yeah, no, 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 um, you're, you're right. And 
even even the there's there's actually quite a few passages um that that speak of you know in glory um oh oh my bad thank you thank you for that um yeah so i mean i, I yeah you you're absolutely correct and i don't have much to add on um but yeah there's actually quite a few passages in the old testament that speak to that talking about god's god's glory filling up the earth right and this will be this foreshadows the new heavens and a new earth and it always speaks of either his presence or his knowledge or his glory right it's kind of synonymous um i think also in numbers and the psalms it speaks of the same thing and in isaiah like you said and so it's a theme you know it's pointing to um that day when um in in glory and it's it's really it's and the way scripture teaches it it's the highlight of heaven right it's being in the presence of god right that is why we look forward to heaven it's not that okay we won't have pain and sickness and death and all these things is that we'll have god and we'll have him fully you know we'll be in his presence his glory and his knowledge will be all over the place so yeah okay okay then uh last book we're going to look at is Zephaniah. So, for Habakkuk comes Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is a pre-exile prophet. So, which is to say that he's a prophet before the people of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, before they are taken into exile by the Babylonians, right? We've covered that quite a bit. We saw through Jeremiah and other, uh, Ezekiel as well. So, if you look at verse 1, chapter 1, says the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we see it's the days of king of King Josiah, and we also see that Zephaniah may be the descendant of Hezekiah, the king, who was also an important person. So his name, if you read through the prophets, like in Isaiah, etc., etc., you'll see his name come up consistently Zephaniah's ministry was during the reign of Josiah as uh, we saw with Habakkuk he was a good king right one of the few good kings that Israel had and it was during Josiah's reign uh, as a king that the Bible was found uh, it was found by someone cleaning out the temple and remember the Bible at the time was consisting of the law the Torah which is uh, um, what the first five books of uh, of uh, the people right so again very concerning that the people god's people went without the bible for so long so in the year 621 bc that's when they discover the bible and they start reading it then they start to reform and implement what they read they re implement the reforms that they see and they know they you know it speaks to this is how the lord says they should live about what they should be doing how they should behave this is how they should worship this is how they should do their sacrifices and so Zephaniah is said to have lived around this time because he references parts of the Bible in light of the discovery of God's word. But overall, the message in this book is quite generic, right? It's the uh, prophetic cycle that we've seen, right? It's what we've been hearing throughout the prophets. Repent, judgment is coming. This is why judgment is coming, because of your sin. But there is hope of restoration at the end. And so Zephaniah starts off and in verse 2 it says, I will utterly sweep every sorry, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. 
I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So you're reading terms like that. You know, there's a, a fish of the sea, there's man and beast, birds of the heavens. What does that kind of language remind you of? It should bring to mind creation. It's creation language, right? Way back in Genesis, in the beginning, God created uh, the earth and then he filled them up with the fish of the sea, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and then man and beast, right? But in this passage, we read it as a as decreation language. It's a reversal of creation. And we've touched on this before, that God's judgment is often described in decreation terms, like uh, the sun being darkened or the stars falling, right? The moon turning to blood. We read that in Ezekiel. So Zephaniah goes on to speak about this idolatrous priest. And again, judgment is coming because of idolatry. Verse 4 says, I will, stretch out, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. And the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So it's all-fashioned idolatry. But notice that there is something called syncretism going on. So what is syncretism? Syncretism is mixing of different faiths and beliefs. So in verse 5 it says that they swear by the Lord and by Milcom. So they are those who go to the temple and then they go serve Milcom as well. So it's easy for us to sit here and be like, oh, that, that's very stupid of them, you know. I would never do that. Imagine going to church on Sunday and then going to a Buddhist temple on, on Monday or to the mosque on Friday, right? It's easy to think you might not be caught up in that kind of blatant, very blasphemous idolatry. But idolatry and sin is much more sophisticated and nuanced than that. I can be in church on Sunday and then on Monday I could be worshipping my career, you know. Uh, I could be worshipping money. On Tuesday I'm worshipping my family. Uh, on on Wednesday, I'm, I'm worshipping myself in pride, promoting myself all over on social media. It's all about me and my brand. We always have to be look out, on the lookout for syncretism in our own lives and make sure that we only serve the Lord, right? Verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And this is a frequent term in Zephaniah. It might even, it might even be the main theme, that of the day of the Lord. Remember, we discussed the day of the Lord and the theology around it. There are little days of the Lord that prefigure the final day of the Lord, when the world and history as we know it ends and Jesus returns. Every day, there are little events that prefigure the day of the Lord. And in this book, one of the little days of the Lord was the attack and destruction of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C., and so that is, what, that is what Zephaniah is warning against in verse 14. So if you look at verse 14, he says, The great day of the Lord is near and, hastening, uh, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified city and cities and against the lofty 
battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all he will, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So, can you see, even in this text, the language goes just beyond beyond just the destruction of Jerusalem in five eighty six, right? Which is a little day of the Lord to the great and final day of the Lord. Especially when he says, "All the earth shall be consumed." For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And so when we read Amos, uh, the book of Amos, there was prosperity in the land before destruction, right? And now in Zephaniah's time, the same thing is happening. There's people who are living wealthy. There's, there's, there's relative prosperity and peace in the land. Uh, and there's people who are putting their confidence, right, in their wealth, in their silver and gold. And we also live in a materialistic, materialistic society but the Lord says here, neither silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver. So it sounds obvious and easy. Like, of course, don't do that, right? Don't put your 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 trust in money and uh, and 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 silver and gold, and you know, don't don't do that. But we do that, right? It's not sinful. It's not it's not a bad thing to have money or wealth. It's actually a gift from God, right? That's what that's what the Bible says. Wealth is a gift from the Lord. The issue is where does your confidence lie? You know, in your wealth or in the giver of wealth? Are you able to sleep soundly only because you have insurance, right? Are you only able to sleep soundly because everything in your life is going well or there are no problems? Um, if that is the case, then you might have an idolatry problem on your hands. Chapter 2, there's a call to seek the Lord and to repent. So verse 3 of chapter 2 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And then there's uh, oracles of judgment against the nations from chapter 3. It's what we've seen from nearly all of the prophets, right? Judge, judgment against God's people and their judgment against the nations. And then there's hope of restoration. But this time, the hope of restoration is not only for Israel, right? Not only for the nation of Israel, but for all the nations, right? Everyone coming together to worship the Lord. And we begin to read, uh, and then we begin to read in chapter 3 of an unnamed city, right? There's the city that is not named, and uh, spoiler alert, I'll tell you now, the city is Jerusalem, right? But in the passage, the Lord does not say that it is Jerusalem. And it's quite a powerful rhetorical device that the Lord uses here because if you're an Israelite and you start listening or you start reading this, right, you read in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. So you as a Jewish person, you hear this and you're like, oh, okay, uh, he's talking about, Zechariah, uh, uh, Zephaniah is talking about Babylon or Nineveh. Verse 2, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not, she, she does not draw near to her God. And you start to think to her God, okay, but uh, in the writing there, it has the word Lord in capitals, right? So that's God's covenant name. So who is he talking about here? Verse 3, 
Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So he's talking about Jerusalem and how bad it is there. Jerusalem is even likened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There's even corruption among the priests and the prophets. And it's, it's, a, it's a condemnation of what's going on in the land. But then there's hope offered from verse 9. So verse 9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So it's a very powerful passage. You have judgment and now you have the promise of restoration and all their sin being forgiven and all the nations are being drawn in, right? It's not just the nation of Israel, it's all the nations. And God being in the midst of his people himself, right? God is with his, with his people. But this is occurring now, right? Christ is in the midst of his people. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus walks among the candlesticks, and the candlesticks we are told in Revelation are the churches. So he is he's, he's in the midst of his people, and his people are made up of Jew and Gentile, right? The Jews and all the nations. And we are part of the heavenly Jerusalem, at least according to the writer of Hebrews, right? So it is being fulfilled now, but not consummately, not ultimately. It's amazing because you have God saying he will rejoice over his people with gladness and he will exult over us with loud singing. It's almost too hard to to fathom, to take in, because one of the hardest things for us to believe is that God loves us, right? If you have if you have a high view of yourself, right? If you have a high view of yourself and bad theology and for some reason those two normally go together, right? Pride and bad theology. When you have pride and bad theology, then it's not such a big thing, right? You're going to think, of course God loves me. I'm amazing. You know, I'm, I'm the greatest thing that has walked this earth since the dawn of time. But that is not what the Bible teaches us, right? He doesn't love us because we are so amazing. The amazing thing about his love is he loved us even when we were wretched. And it's a really big struggle, right? I, I certainly struggle with it. I believe many many Christians struggle to grasp that God loves us. And here you have God breaking out into joy over his people and actually singing over his people. That is an amazing picture of God and how he views us, right? So we can know without a doubt that Christ loves us and he rejoices over us because even the, the picture of God singing amongst his people, it's like if you... if I think to to be singing, you have to be in a good mood. You have to be happy. You know, it's this is not a God who's harshly walking around with a stick in hand, making sure that his people are in line. Like, what are you doing? Don't do this. Don't do this. No, he rejoices over his people. He loves his people. 
Um, he has joy. He finds joy and pleasure in being around them. And so we really have to discipline our minds to believe what the scriptures say, to believe what God has said, which is that God loves us. If you go through a difficult season, you could think, maybe, you know, does he still love me? Uh, am I still his child? Uh, and it could be a lot of uncertainty, right? That could be during difficult times. It could be times when you're struggling with a particular sin uh, or with, a, with whatever, whatever issues going on in your life. But that's a cold view of God, right? You're thinking of God as an employer, as a boss, who, who only loves you when you do well or when you're not messing up, right? But that is not the case. God is not there uh, with a chart in hand doing performance review. No, God is a loving father, right? That is, that cold view of God couldn't be further from the truth. God is a father, a loving and caring father. And so passages like, like this, they give us a glimpse into the heart of God towards his people. God is so happy and so loves his people because he sings over them, right? Because he even sings over them because we are his children, Um. And so that's one of the, 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 the passages that I personally find encouraging, that I find very beautiful, uh, that I read from time to time, especially when you overcome with the temptation to, you know, drown in self-pity, misery, or just feel sorry for yourself and think, oh, you know, God, does he love me? Does he still, you know, am I still his child? You're always his child, you know, now into eternity, uh, until the time when, the knowledge and the glory and the presence of the Lord fills the earth and covers it like the oceans. Okay, so um, let's leave it there. That's the book of Zephaniah. Are there any questions, any comments? Hey, Kaya, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear.
some some attitude. Yeah. Uh, say some attitude. Uh, uh, in some attitude says God is taking his place in the divine council in the midst of the God and your judgment. So uh, you realize that these, you know, uh, I know some people say that these are um, uh, the, the priests of the Israel, but that's not true because of, uh, in verse 6 it says, you are gods, uh, you know, the sons of God, um, of, you, are, you are the sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless shall die like men and fall like any other prince. Arise of God, just the earth, and to thee belong all the nations. So these are beings, these are spiritual beings. I will also mention in Job uh, uh, when they were with the Satan, um, and also I think Moses spoke about them in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. So, my question to you is this um, when you read verse 5 in Habakkuk, not in Habakkuk, sorry, in Zephaniah, in, in uh, yeah. when it speaks about uh, those who bow down in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, those who bow down. On the roofs to the host of the heavens, and he mentions Malcolm, he mentions Baal. Um, as, as we read this, uh, are these uh, beings the host of the heavens? Uh, I wouldn't say uh, in the natural, uh, are they, you know, we can really see them uh, with the eyes of the flesh, but um, I think pretty much they are spiritual beings. I don't, I don't see a connection to all those other celestial beings mentioned in the other text. I see yeah. the host of heavens here. I think it's very specific within Zephaniah right here. So I think it's talking to uh, the Baals. And uh, I think I think it goes with like Milcom, right? So even like the structure of the, the passage. Uh, those who bow down on the roof to the host of heavens. That's speaking of idolatrous worship, right? So... Yeah, I, I I kind of see it as be like being isolated unless, so if if it is linked to like maybe the other celestial beings from the other text, it's still completely pagan, I think, you know. But I think this is just specific to, because I don't think even with Milcom here, I don't uh, I don't know where else it's referenced. So it might be like naming specific gods, like you guys who worship these things, and then you know yeah. the others. So yeah, I, I don't see like a link per se. I think it's just specific to this context, this people that Zephaniah is addressing, um, the host of heavens here. Because yeah, that's 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 what I think. That's my my so, opinion on it. These are not things that exist. It might be some idols that just things exist. So it's not real beings. Yeah, I think it's the idols of the day, basically. You know, it's like these. You guys, you, and I think it's also like very generic. You guys, uh, you know, you bow down to the host of the heavens. You know, it's, yeah. I think it's just speaking to like the idolatrous practices. Um, because remember, th these are like, th remember, these are God's people, right? These are the, um, the Jews. So it's not like pagans, but it's the Jews who know very well who God is. But yet, you know, now they're bowing down to, to Milcom. Now they're bowing down on the roofs to the host of heaven. So it's, I see it as pure um, idolatrous uh, worship 
Um, but it, it might, so then it might, that's where the whole syncretism comes in, right? It's like now they also, you know, they're mixing this with Judaism, with, you know, worship of the one true God in a sense. Yeah. So, yeah, but that, like, that's, that's all I take from it. Like, I, I have a very face, face value reading of this. Okay, no problem, no problem, my pleasure. Um, are there any other questions? Or comments or thoughts? Okay. Seems like everyone is okay then. No further questions. Um, in that case, we'll leave it there. Um, and uh, okay, before we, we just go our separate ways, let me pray for us and then I'll just give you a few announcements. So let me close for us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time you have given us. And um, Lord, we, we ask that these words may be seeds that are sown that may in time produce fruit. Lord, we know that you... Uh, use your word to sanctify us, to grow us, and may we be faithful to your word, Lord. May we learn from the example of uh, the people of Israel and uh, learn from their idolatry, Lord, and be warned on what not to do, Lord, to be on the lookout for uh, the the idolatrous practices and thoughts and, and a lifestyle that we may develop, Lord, um, that prohibits true and full worship of who you are more than that lord we ask that you may point us to christ lord and help us to follow him better and help us to live by his faithfulness lord help us to live by faith uh, now that we've been justified by christ that we may continue to live a life that honors and pleases christ uh, through faith lord and that is by your grace and by the work of your spirit we ask this in jesus name amen